Your neighbor Jim figured out that with MetroPCS, he gets unlimited data, talk, and text for $30, period. Babe, that color looks awesome. Just like he figured out that shopping with his wife will buy him a night with his buddies. That's Guy's Night Out figured out. You too figure it out. Switch to MetroPCS on the fast 4G LTE T-Mobile network for only $30, period. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Plan includes first one gigabyte of data at up to 4G LTE speeds. See store or MetroPCS.com for details and terms and conditions and data management info. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the T. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining me again on Next on the T. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and this morning I am so excited to share three wonderful guests with you. First up, it's always my privilege to have the voice of golf, Peter Kessler, back on the show with me. Peter has become a wonderful friend and someone I have so much admiration for. He's interviewed just about every legend of the game from the 20th and 21st centuries. No one knows more about the history of the game than Peter does. I'll get his thoughts on this year's Open. We'll also see which one he believes are some of the most significant in the history of the game. And we'll hear who he thinks actually is going to come out on top this year at Chambers Bay. Peter's going to join me here in just a few moments. Following Peter is going to be 1991 Open champion and a guy who's doing a great job broadcasting tournaments every week on CBS, and that's Ian Baker Finch. I'll get Ian to take us through that magical week back in 91 at the Open when he finished with rounds of 64 and 66, highlighted by an amazing 29 on his outward half in the final round. Also get his favorites for the U.S. Open and what it's like being involved on the other side of the game, on the other side of the mic now when Ian joins me about 20 minutes from now. And then I'm going to wrap up the show by talking with Bob Geismar. Bob is the founder of One Thought Golf. Bob's not a proponent of beating balls on the range or really going to the range at all. He sees golf as a mental game, and that's where we should be preparing, in the mind. Well, we'll hear all about that when Bob joins me about 45 minutes from now. So it's going to be a great show, and I am so glad you are here to take the journey with me. Next on the T is brought to you by Seymour Putters. Let's hear a word from those guys. Golfers, has this happened to you? Great drive. Perfect second shot on the green. Only the three or even four putt, shaking your head all the way back to the cart. I have good news. Help is on the way with the Seymour Putter. The Seymour Putter Company patented RST technology sets up the putter perfectly every time using a visible gun sight on the top line. Genius. It's like locking radar onto the target, in this case, the golf hole, putting the golfer in perfect position to make a reliable and consistent stroke. The 1999 U.S. Open and 2007 Masters Champions both use, you guessed it, the Seymour Putter. So if you're ready to make more putts and take strokes off your game, log on to Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and put a Seymour putter in your bag today. Like Joe said, check out the rifle scope technology that helped win two majors and 35 tour events and counting 
And it's going to help you make more putts, too. I know it's helping me. I got to tell you, folks, I had two of the best putting rounds of my life a couple of weeks ago when I was on my golf weekend with my buddies. 55 putts over my last two rounds. Check them out online, seemore.com. And again, it's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. And get one in your bag. You're going to be very glad you did. I also want to give a shout-out to our new friends over at Allen Edmonds. The shoes of great leaders from the Oval Office to corner offices the stage and screen and promising cubicles all around the country are a part of what make people successful. The right footwear is important on the carpets and the hardwood floors of the global economy. Get it right with made in the USA quality and value from Allen Edmonds. To find the right pair of shoes for you or anything. I mean, they've got belts and hats and, you know, if you're a Jack Nicholas fan, they've got all kinds of Nicholas products as well. Go to AllenEdmonds.com. Allen Edmonds is an American original. I want to kick off the show, folks, as we do every single week on, on Next on the T, plus our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices and for what you do every single day to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank our veterans for all you've done for us over the years. We truly appreciate everything our military personnel do to preserve the freedoms and the liberties that we all have. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have our show be a part of your network. You can find us by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And I also want to remind our veterans out there, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It's a great site with articles and news and a wealth of information designed specifically for our veterans that I'm sure you guys and gals are going to find very interesting and very, very, very beneficial. Easy for me to say. Again, go to globalvoiceforveterans.org to check it out online. We also want to thank everyone listening in across the Internet and great sites like iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store, or you're just simply tired of the same old, same old on your commute. Download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone so you can take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. All right, now back with me on the Seymour Putters guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Peter, like I said in the intro, has interviewed just about every major golf figure from the 20th and 21st centuries. In the early to mid-90s, he was the voice of HBO Sports, moved on to become the primary broadcasting talent when the Golf Show or the Golf Channel launched back in January of 1995, and he's also hosted his own show on Sirius XM's PGA Channel. You can stream or download many of the outstanding interviews that Peter has done with those legends by going to the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes. And when I say this, I mean it sincerely. When you talk about great interviewers or show hosts, no one has ever done it better than Peter Kessler. Good morning, Peter. How are you, my friend? I am delighted to be with you, and thanks for uh, pumping me up like that. That's a lovely way to start the day. Thank you. Absolutely. Peter, I, I want to start off our time today by getting your thoughts. We're, you know, we're on the precipice now of the U.S. Open, just a, a few days shy of U.S. Open week. It is the 115th U.S. Open. It's being played out at Chambers Bay the first time the U.S. Open has been played in the Pacific Northwest and out in the state of Washington. It's sort of a, a link style, similar to what you'd see over in Scotland, and it's right on the water there at Pudgeon Sound. Who are some of the favorites that you think are going to win this year, you know, be in contention win this year, perhaps maybe a couple of dark horses as well? And do you think that layout is going to favor the European players? 
Well, I don't think it will favor a player from a particular country because this business about the English and Scottish players having grown up playing Lynx golf is complete nonsense. They didn't play Lynx golf at all. Unless you grew up on the coast, you didn't play Lynx golf because there's no Lynx golf inland. It's strictly by the sea. You know, and there isn't a great player who grew up at St. Andrews or a great player who grew up at Carnoustie or great player who grew up at Royal Liverpool. So those guys didn't play Lynx golf. So to answer your second question first, I don't think anybody of any country of origin has an advantage of all because nobody's seen anything like this anyway. It's like looking at the the dark side of the moon. It's an incredibly complex-looking piece of, of ground that they've transformed this golf course into. And I like a couple of kinds of players. It appears as though you can hit it as far as you can hit it without really worrying about getting into too much trouble unless you're significantly offline. But there looks like there's plenty of room for guys to hit it long. So I like Bubba, which is not a popular pick, but I like Bubba because I think he'll enjoy hitting big sweeping hooks and slices around this golf course. I think he'll actually get into it. And when he gets into it, he can be very, very difficult to beat. And he can be very, very good on and around the greens when he's playing well. When he's not, sometimes he has a little bit of a give-up attitude. But uh, when he's playing well, he turns chipping and putting into fun more than, than a problem. So I like his length, and I like his ability to work the golf ball. A lot of the preliminary reports have said that these greens are basically four quadrants, and you need to be on the right quadrant because going from quadrant to quadrant is extremely difficult because of the slopes and humps and bumps in the greens. Um, So, yeah, I I like a long hitter who can position the golf ball. So you also have to like Rory McIlroy, you know, who when he's straight is longer and straighter than everybody. And so, you know, and he's a very good putter, and he's obviously a terrific iron player, particularly with the short irons, of which he has many going into – into all of the holes that he plays. I mean, in, in his most recent win, he was hitting nine iron or less in the 15 of the 18 holes on a given day. So you got to like his chances a lot. And, of course, he won two majors last year, and he's been playing, more importantly, some really good golf lately. He's had a couple of iffy tournaments. The Irish Open didn't work out very well. But but basically, he's been playing good golf for a couple of months. So you've got to like his chances um, Bubba, Rory, Dustin Johnson, for all of the same reasons as the guys above, hits it a really long way. Very creative shot maker. He seems to be having a head on that's uh, working for him right now. Whatever his problems were, they seem to be sorted out. And he's playing some really super golf right now, so you like him. And then my favorite is still Jordan Spieth because of a few reasons. One, over the last six, eight months, he's played better golf than anybody. The most consistent golf, the best golf, and he's putted better than everybody over that time period from pretty much every distance, statistically speaking. And from an important point of view, he's been making the putts, you know, making a 10-footer to get a, get into a playoff at a PGA Tour event, making a 35-footer to then go ahead and win. And, I mean, he's a very special player who's playing some special golf, and he's got three things going for him. One, he's a special player who's playing special golf. 
to his caddy, Michael Greller, knows the golf course better than anybody else because he was a caddy there. I mean, what? who better would you choose than a guy who was a caddy there? And, oh, by the way, it happens to be your permanent caddy. I mean, that's a pretty ridiculous, you know, heads up on the rest of the field. When your caddy knows where to put it better than any other caddy knows where to put it, for sure it's got to be worth the shot around. For sure it's got to be worth the shot for Greller to say, oh, wait, this is a trick shot from this angle. You have to do this. He's going to know more of that than the other caddies for sure. So that's got to be worth the shot around. And then the third thing is Jordan Smith knows the golf course because now it's been five years, but he played it as a junior and he shot a ton, but he played the golf course and he remembers the golf course and they'll get in enough practice rounds. So he's playing better than anybody else and he'll know the golf course better than anybody else. And that's a pretty daunting combination. So I like him um, in terms of a dark horse. Gosh, uh, you know, you'd love to pick a guy like Snedeker or Kucher, but I just, I, I just don't see Kucher not overhooking it, and I don't see Snedeker. I, I just think he's a more iffy putter than he is a really good putter, and so I'm going to go with no dark horse. I'm going to go with you've got to be one of the really, really good players to win this championship. I don't think it's going to be somebody fluky at all. What about a guy like Jim Furyk? You know, Furyk, who's you know, been you know in a, in a, he's got what four top tens so far this season. Got a win, got himself back in the winners' circle. A guy who's been in and around the lead in a lot of tournaments over the last couple of years. Do you think Furyk's got an opportunity to win one here? Yeah, he 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 does. I mean, it's a he's a very interesting guy to describe because I would call him just a really good player of his time. I don't think he's a great player by any means. I don't think he's one of the best players of his time. I don't think he's Hall of Fame material. I mean, you know, look at the facts. Tiger's got 79 wins, and Phil's got 42, and VJ's got some huge number close to that. Um, and you've got Ernie Els with his four majors, and even Padraig Harrington with his three majors. You've got five or six guys who are clearly a whole layer or two better than Furyk, a whole layer or two. 17 wins in a major championship is not good enough, in my view, to get into the Hall of Fame. He's got the worst Ryder Cup track record of anybody who's ever played the game. He went 0 for 9 with 54 hole leads from 2010 to 2015 before he finally poked through and picked one up. And statistically, you have to. One out of 10, he finally did it. So I think there's a lot of stuff you can knock. On the other hand, this guy hits more good iron shots. It's just unbelievable. He rarely seems to be out of play. And if you watch him when he's in contention at a tournament, he hits so many shots to 8 and 10 feet. He just misses a ton of 8 and 10 footers, though. But he hits so many shots close to the hole. I think that you know where you've got a really small target area, that Jim Furyk is one of the guys you really really got to watch out for. Just a question of Furyk's putting. If, if he can make the 8- and 10-footers and he can shake in the 5-footers for par that you need to shake in that he's not done a good job with for the last five or six years, then there's no question he could do well because, I mean, he, if, now I may be critical of him for the things that I did say, but I'll, I'll say this on the positive side. He's an incredibly great ball striker. hits a lot of balls close to the hole. And he may be the second most consistent 
player of his time, after Tiger Woods, of course, because he's very consistent. And after winning, the hardest thing to do is to be consistent. So a consistent player who drives it well, who can put them all into small areas on the greens, ought to do well. So, Peter, I want to build off something you said about Fury, you know, not being you know a great player and a Hall of Fame player. We know Fred Couples is going in the Hall of Fame this year, has fewer wins and also only one major. Has the Hall of Fame you know, become the Hall of the pretty good? Yeah, and and there's you know there's a definite reason for that, which is that the PGA Tour wants to put on a show every year inducting people into the World Golf Hall of Fame, except. You don't have people coming up in golf every year. It's not like baseball where you got hundreds and hundreds of players. In golf, there's only going to be a few players to choose from. And, right. you know, while there may be that a few guys only getting in in baseball, at least there's a crop to choose from. In golf, there's not a crop every year. All of a sudden, some guy becomes eligible because he's 40. Tiger Woods is going to be the next one, you know, so they don't have to worry about the following year. But... You know, I just think it's become the hall of the of the of the good. I mean, Freddie Couples. I mean, I like Freddie very much, but he's one of the most marginal players of his generation. And thirty years on the tour, thirty on the PGA Tour, he won fifteen times with that golf swing. Fifteen times. That's ridiculous. Now, Mark O'Meara is going in. He won sixteen times with two majors to Freddie's one. I put a lot more value on 16 and 2 than I do on 15 and 1. Furyk 17 and 1. Um, I say the minimum criteria ought to be minimum criteria ought to be 20 and 2. You have to win 20 times in the PGA Tour, and you have to have two major championships, and that would let guys out who've you know who've gotten in, like everybody that I just mentioned. And guys like Lanny Watkins with one major wouldn't have gotten in under that criteria. Davis Love wouldn't have gotten in under that criteria. Tom Kite would not have gotten in under that criteria. Colin Montgomery would not have gotten in under that criteria. So, yeah, there's a lot of guys that 20 and 2 kicks out the door who ought to be who ought to have it, you know, said to that they should take their leave. Peter, when we talk about you know the U.S. Open and some of the most memorable. Opens of all time. What are some of the events that immediately come to mind when you think about I mean, four or five top U.S. Opens ever? Well, let's see. I would go with 1913, 1930, 
And so 1930, I would put for Bob Jones winning the U.S. Open and interlocking to complete to almost complete the Grand Slam. He won by a couple shots and then won the U.S. Amateur shortly thereafter at Marion. But that was huge because that completed the Grand Slam year. 51, Oakland Hills, Ben Hogan. I would say that because Robert Trent Jones redid the golf course and made it completely ridiculous, um, and Hogan said, you know, I bought this monster to its knees, you know, it, it signaled the ushering in of a very unfortunate period of golf that still is with us today, which is making the golf courses as hard as they can be. Before then, they did not make them as hard as they could be. They just let the guys play golf. I mean, they may put the pins in some tough places, but even then, they just rotated the pins. They weren't looking for little side slopes to embarrass the players. But that ushered in an era of very difficult golf courses in terms of the building of those golf courses and the maintaining of those golf courses for championship play that would come along for one week every 10 years. And it would also start to solidify Hogan's reputation as one of the best players of all time as he was in the middle of a run of six majors over a few years that would get him to nine and get him into you know the pantheon of one of the great players. 1960, I would say Arnold Palmer um, establishing a relationship between golf and television and between himself and golf fans. Uh, both of which have uh, only gotten stronger over time, golf on television, of course, and and the public's infatuation with Arnold. So that was huge. Um, it introduced Nicholas for the first time to golf fans, and it was the last to Rob Hogan, who had a chance to win on the final day with an hour to play. 72, Nicholas wins the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and he had just won the Masters and went over to play the British Open at Muirfield and had a chance to pick up the third leg of the slam, which he did not get by a single shot when Trevino chipped in on the 71st hole and parred 72nd hole to nip Tony Jacklin and Jack Nicklaus by a shot. And so that was, I thought, a, a pivotal open in terms of just reminding us of how great Jack was and the way that he wanted Pebble and pretty iffy weather was was pretty dramatic and the one iron to four inches was incredible and so that was a pretty big uh landmark and then 2000 with tiger you know he won by 15 shots i was there it had nothing to do with chipping or putting you could have chipped and putted for him all week and he would have still won by 15 shots there was no chipping and putting to do he didn't miss greens in that time period, Tiger Woods hit it down the middle of the fairway virtually every time with any club that he chose to drive it with. He'd hit it to 15 feet, and he'd make some, and he would miss some, and that's how his rounds were constructed. There was none of that stuff with the wedge, none of it whatsoever. I can't think really of more than two or three shots that he played from 1999 through, say, 2003 in major championships that you would characterize as, oh, my God, what an incredible flop shot. There just wasn't any of that because he didn't need it. It was only later when he started to, started to block his driver that he got in trouble. But I can assure you, in 2000 at Pebble, I don't remember him. Hit, he maybe one up and down, I remember, on the 70th hole of the tournament. Tiger had now played the fourth round without a bogey, which was his goal. He mentioned it to me the morning of the final round. He said, my goal is not to make any bogeys with a 10-shot lead and then nobody will catch me. And I said, 
I could take a 10-shot lead in the final round and nobody could catch me. And uh, so he came to the 16th hole, and he knocked it over the green in two, and he hit a chip, a good chip, but it was a really hard chip, hit a good chip to about 12 feet below the hole, and made the putt and fist-pumped like he had just, you know, moved into a one-shot lead in the tournament instead of a 14-shot lead in the tournament. And uh, and so that was remarkable. It was just a really good up and down, but it was just a really good up and down. It wasn't a, oh, my God, from the middle of the woods over the tree and through the clown's nose. He just didn't do any of that until later. He may have had that short game ready to go, but he certainly didn't have to use it at that time. And so that was the introduction of a completely new kind of player, somebody who hit it longer, somebody who hit it straighter, somebody who hit it higher. And we would find out later somebody who would putt better. When you win by 15 shots, it's not all done by putting. And he was also the first guy who had the what we now think of as the juiced-up ball of uh, this century in 2000 at the U.S. Open, he had a hot ball from Titleist that almost nobody else in the field had, and that helped out a lot, too. Peter, one more before we let you go. I've got my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Ian in just a moment. You know, Just to kind of build off of you know the completely new kind of player you, you mentioned about Tiger, and it is a completely new kind of Tiger that we've seen, you know, for for the better part of the last, you know, couple of years. I think we were all surprised at how well he played in the Masters at Augusta National or how poorly he was playing in the weeks leading up to it. And we've seen erratic play from him in just about every other tournament this year, highlighted by the third round 85 at the Memorial. What do you think is it's going to take in order for Tiger to get back to playing consistently good golf? Well, I think it's going to take an awful lot. I think that he's in trouble right through the bag, and he's in trouble psychologically. So that's a lot of stuff. I mean, I think he has a a fear of playing in public now. I I think that he has uh, a terrific problem taking his game from the practice tee, which I understand is absolutely phenomenal, to the first tee, which a lot of recreational golfers are unable to do as well, hit it good on the range and then play play bad golf. Right. I think he's I think he's become uncomfortable playing in front of in front of people now and I think it brings out the worst in him. I know that and I know this has nothing you know, this is maybe not an, a good example, but I know that for me, if there are people around the tee that I don't know, I might be more uncomfortable. If I play with a stranger, I might be more uncomfortable and less likely to play my game. I think on some level those things are bothering him. I think the people are bothering him. I think the atmosphere is bothering him. I think uh, the the fact that he doesn't have confidence is bothering him. I mean, confidence comes from two places, and that's really your question is when will he have the confidence to play good golf again? And it's a tough question because if confidence comes from successfully doing the same thing over and over again and then having people tell you you have done things successfully over and over again, if that's where confidence comes from, he's batting zero because he doesn't have anything to fall back on now that says you're playing good. So there's an O for one in confidence. And he's got nobody who's telling him he's playing good golf now, so there's O for two. And the reality is he isn't playing good golf, so he's 0 for 3. And and the fourth thing is 
he's thinking about it is not clear. He doesn't seem to have the clutter removed. He's still thinking about these numbers and track man and perfect swings and his, his glutes and, and getting the trajectory right and repetitions. And it's all, you know, golf, you know, it's it's all psychobabble and none of it means anything. And all golfers know it. Or, or anybody who plays golf, I don't care if you're a 20 handicapper or a, five, a plus five handicap, everybody knows that what he's talking about is nonsense. There isn't any of those things. There's no release patterns. There's no fast twitch muscle. There isn't any of that. That's all nonsense. Jack Nick, those things may exist, but they don't have anything to do with anything. Jack Nicklaus seemed to get by fine without that, and so did every other player, until t- including Tiger, until this reiteration of Tiger. So I'm going to be surprised if he makes the cut at Chambers Bay if you're asking me to make a short-term prediction. Mm. All right. Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to be a part of the show. Do me a favor. Remind our listeners again how they can find your show and how they can follow you over social media. Well, you can uh, – I, I tweet on occasion, and you can find me, Peter Kessler, and I also have a radio show on iTunes, The Peter Kessler Show, which has about 80 shows on it with some of the greatest players in the history of the game. And uh, I made a DVD with Gary Player that seems to be doing well, The Game for Life, and hoping to make a couple of documentaries about Gary Player, uh, sponsored by uh, Rolex and Lexus and people like that, if we can pull the thing together. So I'm I'm keeping reasonably busy and doing kind of a diverse group of projects. Great stuff. Peter, thank you so much again for, for being a part of the show. There isn't a better way to spend Saturday morning than to listen to you share your thoughts, your insights, and your stories. I can't thank you enough for continuing to come back on the show. You're truly one of the greats. All you have to do is call, and I shall be there, and thank you for the nice compliments. I appreciate it, and it's always a pleasure to be on the show, and I always appreciate the quality of the questions. Thanks. All right. Take care, Peter. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Same to you, Chris. Thank you, buddy. All right. Thank you, Peter. Peter Kessler, and again, he, uh, the Peter Kessler Show on iTunes, as Peter points out, and we talked about in the intro, great stuff. He's got so many of the legends that have ever played this game, so go check it out on iTunes. All right, now joining me on the uh, Seymour Putters guest line is Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia. He turned pro in 1979 at the age of 19, and he credits Jack Nicklaus as his greatest influence, saying he based his game on Mr. Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. So you know we're going to talk about that. He won his first professional tournament in 1983 at the New Zealand Open. He finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988 and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 1989. Won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial. We all remember the thrilling win he had at the 1991 Open Championship at Royal Birkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66 to win by two over his fellow countrymen, Mike Harwood, and three over Fred Couples and Mark O'Meara, a 29 on the outward nine in the final round. Following that year, he finished sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for his achievement and achievements in Australian sports, and we get the uh, privilege and the pleasure of watching and appreciating him every week 
when he is broadcasting for CBS Sports now, clearly one of the best in the business, and I am honored to have him with me next on the tee this morning. Hi, Ian. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Good morning, Chris. Lovely to talk to you and uh, listen to Peter for the last 10 minutes. He's, uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge, hasn't he? Yeah, no, no, you know, the, the history of the game, I don't think there is a, uh, a person on the planet that's a walking uh, encyclopedia for golf history than Peter Kessler. Great stuff. I always enjoy the honor of having Peter yeah. as part of the show. I agree. Ian, he's, uh, as, he's fantastic. And as everyone who listens to this show knows, I'm a, I'm a big Jack Nicholas fan, so I love the fact that you based your game on his book, Golf My Way. When uh, when in, in life were you first bitten by the golf bug, and what pointed you in the direction to use that book to uh, develop your game? I grew up on a farm uh, about an hour and a half out of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia, up on the, an area called the Glasshouse Mountains on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, no one played golf. Um, a few of the farmers, my dad included, got the bug from Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, and the big three shows that were uh, broadcast around the world and uh, they decided to build a golf course in our little town about six miles from our farm and uh, all voluntary labor they built a little nine-hole course called Biwa Golf Club it's still there today and uh, they've extended it to 18 holes and I would drive down on the tractors with with dad and all the men and we built this golf course and at the age of 12 I got my first set of clubs and I left school at the age of 15 to be a golf pro and do my apprenticeship um, with a PGA professional and then started playing the tour when I was 18. So I got the bug early and, uh, you know, achieved all the stuff that you do as a kid and juniors and schoolboys and what have you and decided to uh, make it my life's challenge and I haven't looked back. Have you had a chance to to sit down with Mr. Nicholas and tell him that it was actually his book that uh, you know taught your swing or how you learned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, at uh, I believe it was my thirteenth birthday. I got the book, and I would always well, there was no pro at the club. It was a little country golf course, and uh, I would just have the book, open up the page, and put a club across it, and try and emulate everything that Jack had written and and did, and tried to copy the photographs. I think a lot of players of my age and in my era uh, did the same thing. You know, they got Jack Nicklaus's book and taught themselves how to play. So I've become good friends with Jack and very good friends of his eldest son, Jackie. We're the same age, uh, live in the same town, and our kids went to the same schools and what have you over here in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. So, uh, wow. yeah, it's um, it's pretty amazing, really, to come from where I did and... Uh, uh, to be where I am now and, and friends of the great man, yeah, it's it's pretty special. No doubt. Good for you. And you, you got your first professional win at the 83 New Zealand Open, where you were, what, 22, 23 years old? What was mm-hmm. that like 22, for you to yeah. win such a – Yeah, what was it like for you at that young age to win such a prestigious event? Uh, it, um, it was really just a natural progression. I think I'd been playing on the tour for a while and had started to play a little bit internationally going over to Asia and I'd finished runner up in the Australian open the week before. So it was sort of a, a natural progression. And I, I really, it was pretty raw bone stuff back then. I know it's only 30 years ago, but it was so different to now. Uh, you just, um, you packed up your clubs and you went away and, uh, tried your best and tried to make money and when you ran out of money you went back and got a job or 
uh, did whatever you had to do to get back out there on tour at that young age. It was like our college, yeah. you know, 18 to 22 was our college years on tour uh, with your buddies having a great time, you know, learning how to play the game for a living. So that was a tremendous boost and it got me into the British Open the following year because I was top five on the money list on the Australasian tour. So that second, first, those two weeks were a big part of the progression. Uh, you know, I played St Andrews and led for three days and sort of started to feel like I was capable of playing with the, the world players and playing internationally. So uh, that was really the, you know, the stepping stone to uh, my career. You know, when I was kind of looking back over your playing history, you played really well at Augusta National. In 91, you finished 7th, 92, you know, tied for 6th, 94, you finished tied for 10th. What helped you to, you know, that, that's not an easy course to just step up and start playing and playing at a high level like you did. What helped you play so well there? Uh, I think I was just always uh, so switched on and fired up at the majors. Um, I believed I was always a very good putter. And I and good around the greens, and I always felt I could win there. But the style of putter I was and still am was so aggressive that I found it very hard on the short putts, uh, having to hit them outside the hole. And I always had a lot of three putts at Augusta. I think I could have won in '91 and '92 had I putted a little bit better. And um, but the course itself really suited my game. In those days, it wasn't so long. You didn't have to be a bomber. It helped to be a bomber yeah. on the par fives, but you didn't have to be. You know, I could reach the par fives. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Augusta is just a, such a wonderful test and such an inspiring place that, uh, you know, it's easy to get up for. Do you remember the first time you got the opportunity to drive up Magnolia Lane? What was that like? Yeah, I'd, I'd finished well at the Open Championship in 84, and I was invited to play Augusta National in 85 was my first year there. So uh, I was 24, you know. In those days, that was young. Now there's 50 guys on tour that are that age. But uh, yeah. but back then, you know, if you were if you're winning and playing well at an international level in your early 20s, it was somewhat unusual. Um, so it was... It was hard to expect to play well the first year, and I didn't. I missed the cut. But I played nicely, just, you know, my aggressive style of putting uh, certainly didn't suit it, and I think I had 10 three-putts in the two, first two rounds. But the, the experience of driving up Magnolia Lane for the first time, and in fact, any time when I go back there uh, each year now at CBS and as an honorary invitee, and I play the par three and uh, feel a part of the... Uh, the event and the week, it's just a, an incredible, surreal um, experience and, and always will be. I, I think it's one of the most amazing um, places in the world of golf. And that drive is, uh, you know, we make it into something really special with the media coverage and seeing the clubhouse at the end and the, the green with the yellow flag and the Augusta National you know, logo so famous. Right. Uh, the Masters logo. I, it's just, it, it really is that special. It's not trumped up. I want to talk a little about your uh, your win at the 91 Open Championship. You you had one of the most amazing front nines in major championship history. You go out in 29, making almost every putt you looked at. Did, 
Did you just have a feeling that everything you looked at that day was going to go in? Uh, it was more the play that, yeah, I, I had, uh, you know, five good putts in the first seven holes, had five birdies in the first seven. Yeah. But they were, they were the only one putts I had all day. I two-putted everything else. I was just playing um, relaxed golf. I'd been playing well in the summer leading into the Open. Um, I'd played in the final group the year before with Nick Faldo and watched him win in style. And I just forced myself to think of it although it wasn't, and it was certainly my goal to, to win an Open Championship, but I forced myself to think that it was just another event. It was just another tour event, and I was going to continue to play like I had been, and I was going to get out of my own way when the pressure was on, and I, I basically committed to uh, letting myself play the way I knew I, I was and could. And uh, Mark O'Meara and I played in the last group. We were leading, tied for the lead. And I just jumped out of the boxes so well, you know, and focused, made some good birdies. The weather was off and on again, raining and windy and typical open championship weather. And nothing seemed to bother me. It was just a, a, you know, comfortable round of golf. And down the end, I knocked it on 17 in two and two putted for birdie for a three-shot lead. And I just played safe up the last, knocked it down the left into the left rough, hit a six iron out short, chipped it on to... 12 feet and two putted for the bogey to win by two. So uh, huge, huge um, relief in a lot of ways, getting it done and, and doing it from the lead. But my commitment to just allowing myself to try and relax and not let the the moment get the better of me, I think was the, you know, the winning formula for me. Yeah, and your, your countryman, Mike Harwood, you know, as you pointed out, I mean, you walk off, the seventh green, you know, you went from a tie with O'Meara. You walk off the seventh green after you know, your, your, your five birdies. All of a sudden, you're five strokes in front. Your countryman, Mike Harwood, cuts into your lead, you know, cuts it down to two uh, as you guys, uh, you know, go go to 16. And then on 16, you hit one of the prettiest four-iron shots that you're ever going to see. Did that, you know, did did doubt ever start to creep in your mind as Harwood starts to cut into your lead and it and then finally, when you get to 16 and you hit that four iron, did that tell you, you know what, I'm going to win this thing? Uh, yeah, pretty much. That that was a that was a pretty shot. And uh, I remember saying to my caddy Pete Bender, I said, "You like that one, Petey?" As it was in the air, going straight at the flag, and he said, "I love it." And uh, <laughs> I two, it was 10 feet away. I two putted for the par, and then knocked it on for two on the next, and two putted for birdie. And um, I I guess I was. I wasn't concerned that someone was charging. I was more concerned in doing what I had to do, and that was keep hitting the ball in the fairway and on the greens. And it was, there was no stress. I didn't have to hold the putts. You know what I mean? I was I yeah. was uh, in far enough in front that I could knock it on the green and two putt all the way home. And and the rest is history. Indeed which I could have is. kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk just I want to the close the thought on on that open is as you come up eighteen, you know the fans are rushing all around you and you know they get out there actually on the course so it's a little different there right where they get to actually run out on the course and sort of surround the green. What was it like kind of walking through the crowd? I know Marco Mira gets knocked down I think on his way up mm. trying trying to get to the green. But, you know, the enthusiasm of the crowd and to see that and to know that that's all there for you. What's that feel like? Uh, at the time, you're just concentrating on getting it done. You know, you can't relax until the ball's in the hole 
and the card is signed. But it uh, it's bedlam, it's mayhem. I had experienced yeah. it twice before. Uh, in 84 and 90, I had been in the final group on the Sunday and didn't win, so I was in a different frame of mind, obviously, being knocked about by the crowds, etc. And on those two occasions, it's St Andrews. But it is now um, curtailed somewhat. You know, they have double barriers and lots of uh, police and security people and whatever to keep them away from the players because, you know, anything could happen in there. It really is thousands of fans, you know, charging to get a view of the green and to get close to their to their heroes, etc. So it's it's a little less prevalent now in the modern era. But but then it it wasn't a scary situation. You know, you had a couple of bobbies, you know, beside you walking you through. But yeah, Mark got knocked down, his shoe came off, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it, it could have been more serious. You know what I mean? Sometime it could have been where a player was knocked down and, and perhaps couldn't finish or, or needed attention or. So I'm glad they've uh, improved that situation a little bit. It's exciting as, you, as you're doing it. You know, it's a big part of the uh, the memory and uh, and the experience. Let's talk a little bit now. You're on the other side of the mic, if you will, and, and covering you know for CBS Sports. And Ian, I, I read that at the 2007 Barclays tournament, while you're covering it for CBS, you get hit by an Aaron shot by Rich Beam in the teeth and momentarily knocked <laughs> yeah. out. Do you mind telling that story? Yeah, it was uh, back then we used to interview the uh, the CEO. It was Bob Diamond from Barclays. And uh, I would always come down out of the tower and head up to 18 and be there ready as the last groups approached 18 to interview the CEO of the, of the tournament and the leading sponsor. So, I was down there with him, and had it not hit me in the cheek, it would have hit him right in the face. It was uh, I was right beside him, ready to go, had the mic up, ready to go. I'm here with Bob Diamond from Barclays, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Beamer snap hooks a three-wood up the last and, and whacks me in the mouth, knocks my teeth loose, hits me to the ground. You know, I get back up, and uh, unbeknownst to me, the cameraman in the 18th Tower always follows the shots into 18 green. And he had followed the shot of Rich Beams and caught the whole thing on camera. So they then proceeded to show it on TV. So I had lots of concerned fans and family and whatever calling me later and my phone lit up and I was everything okay. But uh, yeah, it's um, just one of those moments, just another one of those times. It'll always be a good story to tell. <laughs> right. Ian, uh, before we let you go, we got the we got the U.S. Open coming up, and uh, curious to get your thoughts. Who are the guys that uh, you think are the favorites to win this tournament? Who and what should be what should we be looking for next week as we watch the well, coverage? I would I would say um, as as briefly as possible. It's not like a typical U.S. Open because of the style of the golf course. So I'd be looking for players that I believe would be better typically at a British Open because that's the style of course it will be. And it's the same at the PGA Championship at Whistling Straits. Uh, you have to have a lot of patience. You have to expect the worst at times. Uh, you have to keep it in play. You have to uh, fight the winds. I'm sure there'll be strong winds there. Uh, the greens are huge and extremely difficult, and they'll be slow like a British Open, not fast and hard like a typical US Open. 
So, you know, I, I kind of like guys, obviously Rory McIlroy, I'm not going out on a limb by suggesting him. He's number one in the world by far. But I, I think he has what it takes to win on that style of course because, you know, take away how he played at the Irish Open a couple of weeks ago. That was totally unusual. But he's normally good at being prepared for that sort of stuff. I think guys that, uh, like, uh, say, Webb Simpson, um, who's good or great around the greens, Phil Mickelson, I'd love to see him win, having had six runner-up places. Uh, and, and the Bombers, you know, Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson, Henrik Stenson, guys like that that can nail it out there. Uh, Jason Day, perhaps, although he hits the ball terribly high, if the wind blows, I always find that a bit of a detriment for Jason that he does hit the ball so high always. There's lots of ways of thinking about it. Is it is it the bomber or is it the good chipper and putter? So if you have both of those and you've got the patience and the, and the major championship mentality, uh, to me, that's they're the favourites. And I think it'll be interesting. I really do. I'm, I'm really interested. I'll be watching it a lot. Uh, I'm not covering it. I'm not going out there. It's, it'll be on Fox, but I'll be interested to see how the guys um, handle that type of golf course. Right. Ian, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning uh, to be a part of the show. You're fantastic. Let 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 our listeners know how can that. they follow you online and over social media. Oh, I'm uh, my Twitter handle. <clears throat> excuse me, I don't tweet that often, but I'm. Uh, it's really just golf and my experiences in golf and where I'm playing now and uh, this, you know, tweeting the CBS coverage, IB Finchy, it's capital IBF Finchy. And, um, you know, as, as you said, always on CBS every weekend and we'll be on today at the FedEx St. Jude Classic in Memphis from uh, two to five local, three to six Eastern. So I think uh, we have a great ensemble of voices and uh, team, our technical team, uh, men and women on the cameras and, and in the trucks are, are just second to none at CBS. We've been been a big family for a long time, so it's it's really uh, the best coverage to watch, in my opinion, and a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> there you go. Ian, I really hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. So many other events that you got to be a part of and, and play in that I'd love to get your thoughts on, but uh, you're fantastic. Thanks for being here this morning. Thanks very much, Chris. You keep up the great work. Thanks, Ian. All the best to you and your family. And to you. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Ian. Ian Baker Finch. Wow. I mean, you want to talk about a guy who's, you know, so fantastic to watch on, you know, on the coverage now, but had such a great career that uh, doesn't get enough credit for. And that, uh, that 91 Open Championship, absolutely amazing. If you have the opportunity, uh, check it out on YouTube. That, that outward nine of 29 and then final rounds of 64 and 66 to win. And uh, absolutely amazing. And what a great man on top of all of that. All right. Now joining me on the Seymour Putters guest line is Bob Geismar. And Bob is the founder of One Thought Golf, which you can buy and download his book from uh, his site, uh, bobgeismar.com. And, and I am thrilled to have him with me next on the tee this morning. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Chris. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I got you. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, I'm on my so, cell. Sometimes you know how cell phones work. <laughs> indeed. So, Bob, before we, we get into, you know, some of, uh, you know, the golf philosophy and one thought golf, please, when I, went, when I went on to your site, your story is absolutely amazing. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? 
oh, I'd be happy to, <clears throat> not because of how I recovered, but because I hope to help a lot of people. I uh, About nine years ago, Chris, I got stricken out of the blue. I'm 52 years old, healthy as a horse. I could walk 36 holes in those days. I got stricken out of the blue, and, and to you know, give you the Reader's Digest version, uh, with a, a very rare disease called Churg-Strauss syndrome. And it's a form of a broader group of diseases uh, called vasculitis. Churg-Strauss syndrome hits approximately 300 Americans a year. Very rare, not the rarest of diseases, but very rare. I, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, I was uh, pretty much ready to check it out when a couple of great doctors uh, saved my life. And uh, the option is uh, I'm in remission. I have been for, for years. I get fabulous doctoring, tre tremendous treatments, uh, great doctors who are amazing. I got to tell you something, Chris. If there's something wrong with you and you live in America, there's probably somebody who's working on that. It's a truly, uh, you know, we, we have, you know, to get off on a question, but we do have criticisms of a lot of things in our lives. But if there's something wrong with you, there's somebody working on it. Because not many people get what I have, and yet uh, Cleveland Clinic in Ohio has, has a group of doctors that really just amazingly care deeply and, and have, have helped me a lot. And the only thing is, though, it left me <clears throat> with severe nerve damage, uh, Chris, in my hands and feet, particularly my left hand, which I literally lost the use of, and was told by a couple of doctors that I probably would never play golf again. Well, that pretty much devastated me, as you might imagine, being an avid golfer right. my whole life. Right. So, <clears throat> again, shortening the story a little bit for time's sake, I uh, went through extensive occupational therapy for uh, 15 months and was able to get back on the golf course. And... Uh, had the greatest round of my life, not score-wise. I shot an 85 after not playing for 18 months, and uh, you know, nothing will ever beat that, not my hole-in-one, not breaking 80, nothing will ever beat that round of golf because I proved them wrong. And I'm here to tell hey. you that if you can, if I can do it, so can you. And a lot of people have, have health issues that they deal with on a daily basis, and there's help out there. And uh, don't be afraid to ask for it. Anyway, thanks for letting me, letting me tell my story. I appreciate that, Chris. Absolutely. And, you know, Bob, I mean, I guess one of the things that, you know, just struck me so much is talk about, you know, maintaining the fortitude. When, when doctors are telling you you're never going to play the game you love again. And not allowing that to defeat you and to, and to rise up and to, and to you know, kind of, will yourself back out there how do, talk about being able to do that well i needed some help i'm being honest with you i needed what i call an empathetic ear the doctors give me sympathy my friends my family they could all give me sympathy they had no idea how i felt i found i did find a woman in texas through the internet who uh, didn't have Churg-Strauss syndrome, but her daughter does. And it's such a rare disease, it very rarely inflicts 
people under the age of 35. And uh, this woman spent four hours with me, Chris, on the phone one day, out of the blue. And she said to me, she, I said, gosh, I want to, you know, I'm, I want to play golf again. And she goes, you know, I don't know what is it about golf, but everybody wants to play golf again. She was laughing because she had helped other people. She said, I can't promise that you'll ever play golf again, but I will tell you this. People have come back from this and that I will be there with you every step of the way. What else to say? I get a little emotional. Sorry yeah, about the emotion, but uh, it meant right. a lot to me uh, because uh, – if she didn't tell me that, I didn't know what I was going to do. Sorry, Chris. No, no, no reason Sorry to be. Sorry for the emotion there. But, no, that's but an emotional point, story. It is an emotional story. Um, and I still play in pain, but but it's it. I don't even notice it anymore, really. I just, you know, I'm I'm past all that. We get past it quickly. So uh, at any rate. That's that's how I maintained it. I I put a seven iron in my hand every day, and every day it would clunk to the floor until one day it didn't clunk, and I said, you know what? I'm getting it's it's here, and I called everybody. I said I'm going to be able to play golf again, and uh, pretty cool round that first one, Chris. Got to be honest with you. I strike my first drive right down the middle much to the astonishment of the men I was playing with, so much to the astonishment that nobody said anything. We just went, we just <laughs> went to the ball. It was great, yeah. I bet I that know. was a great feeling. Good for you, Bob. So let's talk a little bit about your philosophy around the game. You don't advocate beating balls on the range in between rounds or even prior to playing. You're You're all about stretching and mental preparation. Why should we stay away from going to the driving range? Because we're not good enough. In, in a quick sentence, I think that the game of golf has been um, taught in such a way that we think there's some secret out there or something special that you don't already have an opportunity to have and possess in your in, in your being right now. And I say that meaning... You already possess the power. You read my uh, the uh, website, and that's one of yeah. my mantras. You possess the power. Why should you go to the range and do what the pros do when they're doing something different? We're trained, Chris, from day one to try to do what the professionals do, and I think that it's improper. Let me give you an example. I drive a car on a street. Jimmy Johnson, Tony Stewart drive cars too. Well, sort of. They don't drive the same kind of car I do, nor does Phil Mickelson strike a golf ball like I do. I don't think like Phil Mickelson. I can't play like Phil Mickelson. He has to go to the range. Why would I go to the range? And it's not going to help me. There's nothing I'm going to learn there. And it is one of the points of my philosophy that's been challenged. And if you want to go to the range, that's fine. I don't have a big problem with it. But remember, you're not going to find it on the range. You're only going to find it in what I call the foxhole. 
and you re- you read my information, my book. We're yep. not good enough, Chris, to do it on the range. You can only do this in what I call the foxhole, which is in that instant. You know, you're in you're in the rough. The lie isn't good. Whatever in that one second when you have an opportunity to do it, that's how you do it. And when you do it, you remember it, and it gets better and better with time. So, and Bob, you know, I mean, so much of, of what you've got out there on your site, again, it's, it's you know, Bob Geismar, let me, G-E-I-S-M-A-R, so go to bobgeismar.com. There's a lot of great stuff that you relay in there. You also talk about how, it goes along with what you are just saying. You talk about when you're going to play golf, you prepare for, you know, playing great before you even get in the car or on your drive to the course. You're pre-programming yourself for thinking and action success. What do you mean by that? Well, most amateur golfers, Chris, go to the golf course. They don't really have, I call, a formula, a process, or a game plan. I do, and I developed it. Because if you feel as though you can play well and you tell yourself you're going to play well every single time, you will play well every single time. And because and I, I, I was a 15 handicapper, and I'd go to the golf course on Saturday, and I, I might say, gee, I'm going to try to putt better today or I'm going to try to chip better today or whatever, but I didn't have a game plan. If you prepare athletically, and that's the other thing I do, I don't want to call people recreational golfers. I don't know what that means. Recreation is when you take your kids to the park and they run around. That's a recreational activity. This is an athletic event and should be treated as an athletic event. Athletes prepare to succeed, and they have game plans and execute those game plans, and that's what I do with my philosophy, Chris, is execute a game plan in an athletic point of view. So to that end, which is which is always funny yeah. to me, because, you, know, you know, forever, Bob, people are talking about, you know, how golfers, you know, aren't athletes, right? Right. And, and you, you talk about, you know, but you talk about the opposite side, about preparing yourself, you know, athletically, which is, you know, stretching and that sort of thing. So, Talk about the importance, and, and particularly someone you know that that has been through what you've been through with you know you know circulation issues and that sort of thing. But talk about preparing yourself athletically. Well, I think you have to stretch. You have to be hydrated. I'm a huge believer in in drinking proper fluids. I'm I'm a, just I just drink water. I eat apples, peaches, pears, anything on the golf course to keep your sugar level normal and and level because you never want to run out of gas on the last three or four holes, which I hear all the time, by the way. People say, gee, I'm getting tired, and I'm not because I have prepared to not. You know, I've prepared as an athlete. So athletes prepare to succeed athletic program. I'm not asking people, as you read in the book, to run a four-minute mile or throw a 95-mile-an-hour Clayton Kershaw fastball. I, I don't. That's not what we're after. But if you think athletically, and you stop thinking recreationally, there's a big, huge difference, and you, it'll allow you to be the best golfer you can be. 
There you go. That's fantastic stuff. Bob, your site is absolutely wonderful, and the book is fantastic. Please tell our listeners again how they can find you online and then follow you over social media as well. Okay. It's my uh, website is Bob, and you mentioned it, BobGeismar.com, B-O-B-G-E-I-S is in Sam, M-A-R.com. And social media, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't do a whole lot of Twittering, uh, but I do some radio blogging and a little bit of blogging, but they can always email me. I love emails, and I get back to everybody. It's bob at bobguysmar.com, and I get back to everybody. It may take me a day or so, but I do. And the book's available. It's on sale for under under 10 bucks. I'm not, they don't want to buy it. That's, you know, that's fine. That's not the purpose of this. The purpose is to get people interested in playing the best golf they can play. And, and I sure, I just appreciate you having me on the show. Um, and it's, it's so, it's so great having you. You got such a wonderful story. Thank you so much for taking time this morning you know, to be a part of the show. It was great having you. I hope you'll come back and, uh, and join me again sometime, share more of your insights with us. I'd love to, but before I let you go, you have just another yeah. second for me? Sure. Listening to Ian Baker Finch, you know, it's hard following that accent, that voice. So isn't he isn't he fabulous? <laughs> he really is. And also also I gotta say this. You know, people talk about bucket lists. I finally got to go to Augusta in twenty twelve. And uh if people are out there, if you get a chance to go or you, you almost have a chance, but you got to push the pencil a little bit to get there. Please do it. There's nothing I've never, and I've been all over America at millions of, you know, lots and lots of golf courses. I hear Bandon, Bandon Dunes is fantastic. That's one I haven't been to yet. But Chris, is Augusta the best or not? Oh, there's no question. It's, you know, Bob, for everyone who listens to this show on a regular basis, knows it's my favorite place on the planet. If they told me you could pick me up and put me down anywhere on the planet, where would I want to get set down? It's Augusta National every single time. I know, and it's one last thought. I we arrived at Augusta. We had a had one of their one dollar biscuit cheese biscuit uh, egg sandwiches, you know, for breakfast. Yep. Now I'm with my two grown sons, and I say, "Don't anybody move, okay?" Am I really here, or am I watching this on television? <laughs> and I said, and then I heard the crack of a ball, and I saw Dustin Johnson on the first tee, and I said, yeah, I'm here. Let's go. Unbelievable. That's right. Absolutely Thanks right. Thanks for giving me that extra. It is just the greatest place on earth, and they have, they don't leave anything to chance, do they, Chris? No, they do not, and I couldn't agree with you more with that statement, Bob. It is my favorite place on the planet. Bob, again, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to be on again anytime. You'd be good. All right. You too, Bob. All the best to you and your family, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye, Bob. Bob Geismar again. BobGeismar.com. Great stuff. One Thought Golf. And it's uh, it's worth a look. Go check it out online. All right. Now back with me on the Seymour Putters guest line to answer more of your questions is 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. You? I'm doing well. I'm just getting ready to go on a a little trip with my family to uh, Florida since I missed the cut yesterday here. So I'm... uh, 
reluctantly doing some some duties before I before we depart. <laughs> I, uh, and I was I was hoping really hard, Sean, that uh, that that uh, cut line was going to move one one stroke further down, so uh, we'd get the uh, privilege of watching you, uh, uh, you know, up in Memphis over the next couple of days. But uh, you know, n- nothing wrong with the rounds you shot. What back to back seventy ones? Yeah, you know, it's a little disappointing. I think you know, but um, I didn't didn't hit the ball as well as I would have liked. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's a tough golf course. Um, you know, the greens are pretty small and they give you plenty of room to drive it, but you know, the fairways aren't really that wide either. And so when you're in the Bermuda rough, it's difficult to, to really make a play into the green. There's a lot of forced carries, you know, particularly on the back nine. And, um, so I missed a lot of greens the first day, and I didn't have a lot of opportunities, but my short game was, was pretty good. And then yesterday, missed a few greens and uh, actually chipped in on four and then uh, came around and, and missed a fairway on six and made bogey and then birdied eight, which was which was great to get me right back. And I really wasn't following the leaderboard. I kind of figured the cut was going to be about one over. And... Uh, I got to nine and I hit it right down the middle of the fairway and I was in between clubs and I hit a shot long and um, I had a, it wasn't an easy chip, but it's probably one I should get up and down seven out of 10 times. And I kind of went underneath it and just got onto the green. I had about a 10 footer and I missed it. So it was disappointing uh, for a number of reasons. I think one, cause I didn't really play like I would have liked, but the other is just when you have an opportunity to kind of close out, um, you know, making the cut. I mean, the pressure exists there really for everybody, you know, on cut line. When you're on the cut line, it, you know, you got the pressure because you're not going to give yourself an opportunity to, to move up on the leaderboard on Saturday and Sunday if you don't make it. So there is pressure for those, of, you know, for those of those people that think that, you know, ah, what's it matter if you just miss one cut? I mean, it matters because if you miss the cut by 14 or you miss the cut by one, it's the same thing. But mentally, it's not because when you're 14 over, you kind of give up. You, you kind of resign yourself to the fact that you're going to miss the cut, and you might just be going through the motions. But when you're right on the cut line, I guarantee you, you're trying, and uh, you know there's a lot of pressure there. And I felt a little bit of that, I guess, just because I. It's important for me to to make the cut um, when you're not exempt. You know, when you're an exempt player and you got three, four years you know, and your exemption and you're, you're just kind of going, um, it doesn't really, it's not as much, much importance, but when you don't have status, like, like, like me, uh, you know, every dollar that you make moves you up into your category, which affects you for not only this year, but for next year and, and, uh, the opportunities to play. So it was disappointing in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that's, that, that's something that, uh, you know, not everyone, you know, fully, you know, understands and to your point about, you know, what's the importance of missing a cut, but for, for you, as you're trying to, you know, get into more events and, and be eligible for more events, that's a big deal. And, um, you know, and certainly we're rooting for you to the next go next go around that you, that you make the cut because we want to see you out there, you know, successful on the tour and, and uh, build yeah. momentum because uh, what I think is going to be outstanding is when you get out on the Champions Tour. Yeah, you know, and I saw a lot of good things um, that I was doing over the last couple of days. I mean, my thought process was pretty good. I played to areas that um, I needed to to uh, give myself the best opportunity for par. Because again, like I said, there's a, there's a lot of golf. There's a lot of 
holes that uh, you know if you're not in the fairway you can't you can't attack the pins. So I thought uh, very well around the golf course the last two days. I just wasn't as sharp off the tee as I had been, and I, I kind of keyed in on some things the last ten eleven holes yesterday. But um, the lack of competition really hurts. It hurts me, and um, it just something I had to deal with. And I, so maybe there was a little bit more pressure for me uh, to play well. And it wasn't because I was playing in front of my friends and family and those types of things like it normally does, because uh, those are always there. But I think just knowing that I don't have many opportunities that you have to take advantage. It's kind of like a you know guy for a company, and he's got he's got really one opportunity to make a big sale, or he doesn't get to go to work. You know, he doesn't get that job that he's you know really wanting. So um, the preparation was there. It just uh, was a tough course, and conditions were difficult. But um, so I was a little bit a little bit disappointed that I kind of uh, missed out for the play of the weekend. Sean, let's get uh, let's get into our mailbag for you. We've got uh, you know a handful of questions here that uh, folks have asked and uh, want to get uh, get your thoughts on. Um, one, you know, right off the top, real quick, uh, you know, one of our listeners wants to know what's your favorite course to play. Oh, I love St. Andrews, the old course at St. Andrews. I mean, there's so many that stick out, but. Um, you know the the history of the golf course, the the the, the home of golf, um, the town of St Andrews. Really, it's all encompassing. Um, you know, many would think I'd like Oak Hill, which I do. Um, it's probably the most memorable golf course for me. Um, had more right. significance in my career. But just as far as just thinking of a golf course off the top of my head, I mean, I think of I think of St Andrews. Um, like I said, the town, the people. The smell—it's hard to—it's hard to kind of describe the smell. There's a sweet, kind of a sweet aroma that goes around that golf course with the heather, and and I don't know what it is, but um, you know, I I think of that place, that, you know, right off the top of my head. One of our listeners from up in Wisconsin writes uh, and wants to know if the, they're going to get to see you at the PGA Championship up at Whistling Straits this year. I am, yes. Um, you know, one of the great parts of being a, a PGA champion is that, uh, you know, you have a pretty lengthy exemption. Uh, I, I, it may, is it 60 or 65? I don't really know. I probably won't be playing. I won't be playing at that point probably, but I'll be up there. And, you know, the U.S. Open is the only tournament, the only championship that doesn't give its champion um, a lifetime exemption. And U.S. Open gives you 10, 10 years um which is surprising to a lot of people. You look at Lee Jansen, won two U.S. Opens, was qualifying a few years ago, and he he qualified this year. Retief Goosen, same thing. I saw Retief the other day here. He was qualifying here in Memphis, and uh, he won, I think, 12 years ago was his last U.S. Open. So they do things a little bit differently, um, but uh, really thankful to the PGA, and it's honoring its champions like that. And, um you know, they, they kind of let you decide when it's time to go out. And I think that's that's great because all of us are smart enough to know that when the golf courses get to be too long, that it's, you know, it might be time to shut it down. We, we've we had, you know, uh, folks continue to write in all the time questions about your health. And, again, we got a couple this week about your shoulder and uh, how – how, how's your shoulder feeling, and uh, did it, did it get hurt in a particular tournament, or was it just sort of wear and tear over time? 
Um, yeah, I think it was just wear and tear over time. Um, you know, because I, I haven't really, it, it was seven years ago on the 8th of June. So we're just past the seven year mark and I still struggle with my shoulder. Um, it was a really significant injury. And uh, when you have something like that at 39 years of age, I mean, anybody that's had a labral tear with as close as it was to the bicep tendon and those types of things, just how difficult it is to re- recover from. But, um, I don't really recall how exactly I got it injured. I, I do remember one thing that really stands out is at the end of 06, and I had a really good 06. I, I played well yeah. at Medina. I finished second in the PGA and, you know, I finished second in the world match play in London. And uh, so I got to 07, and it was at Bay Hill. And – I hadn't really worked with my teacher in, in a few months. You know, I hadn't uh, – I, I kind of never been someone that needed to, to have my teacher on a weekly basis. And and you know what? And maybe maybe I should have. You know, maybe I would have won a few more tournaments. But um, anyway, I remember going to Bay Hill, and I was warming up, and Matt, who I was working with at the time, Matt Killen, came up to me, and he was watching me hit balls, and he asked me if I was working with a new teacher, and I said no. You know, why do you ask? And he said, well, your swing is a lot lower than it was when I had you, you know, a few months ago. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I said, my shoulder's kind of not feeling great. I don't know if it just feels kind of weak or whatever. I mean, I think I just kind of strained it or something like that. So um, maybe that's what it is. And I, I kept on, I kept on, and all of a sudden this popping sound started. And I played I played all of 07 and, and, and went to the doctor in 07 uh, the doctor that I went to uh, did an x-ray, and he didn't do an MRI. And it's my own fault for not being a being a great advocate for myself because uh, I should have pushed a little bit more for, for an MRI. But not being a doctor, I didn't think much about it. And I figured, you know, all these orthopedics know what they're doing. But uh, So I continued to play, and that really got worse and worse. Uh, part for me was that I was in – in the last few years of my exemption for the PGA Championship. And knowing the way medical exemptions work and, and all those sorts of things, I I needed I felt like I kind of needed to keep playing. And uh, all the major championships, because if I shut it down, I was done. I wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to be exempt for the majors anymore and those types of things. So I I kept playing. And it was at Jack and Barbara Nicholas's uh, tournament. I, I spoke to them um, probably for 30 minutes on my shoulder at the memorial in 2008. And Mr. Nicholas asked me, he says, are you, are you competitive? And I said, absolutely not. I said, you know, Jack, I said, look at my scores. I'm, I'm struggling, but I, I just feel this sense of this obligation to my family and to my, uh, to the PJ tour and to myself to keep playing. And he just kind of chuckled and, and just said, you know, I, I think you're done. I mean, Dr. Andrews told you what to do, and you need to follow his advice. So uh, I did that. And that was that because I canceled the surgery a month before that. I just wanted to keep playing. And that's when he and Barbara both told me. Just They kind of shook their heads and just told me to shut it down. So that's what I did. And um, But my shoulder still still hurts to this day. So <laughs> at 46 wow. years of age, things aren't, things aren't getting any looser, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I can attest to that too, my friend. Um, yeah, yeah. Sean, we got 
We got another question about your health, and the and the, uh, and the listener writes, Sean, my father recently had bypass surgery. What did your doctors tell you about heart health and playing golf? Well, I was a little nervous about that in the beginning, to be honest with you. Um, after I had my first heart catheterization, which was February of 2014, instead of doing the stenting then or the bypass then, um, you know, it was going to be their determination as to what procedure I was going to have. Uh, I was, I started a regimen of medication, um, that was obviously going to help, you know, my heart, my heart rate, um, the amount of blood that my heart needed to pump. Um, and I, about two weeks after I had the procedure done, I went, I got on an airplane to go to South America. And I went to Santiago, Chile. They weren't too happy with me making that decision because... I bet not. Uh, yeah, you know, look, Santiago is a, an extremely advanced place. I, I, I love that city. Um, and so I wasn't so worried about that as I was kind of the airplane ride. Unfortunately, I had a couple of weeks between the procedure and this tournament to kind of see how I was going to feel. And I felt good. And they were like, okay, well, if this happens to you, this is what you need to do type of thing. Um but as far as any type of um, major diet, I, I've, I've kind of felt like I've always eaten fairly well. Um, but they didn't go to the extremes of putting me on any type of Mediterranean diet. I mean, you know, salads. I try to eat. I try to eat a salad a day. Olive oils. I try to stay away from all the heart unhealthy things that you know, the prepackaged foods and things like that. Um, but I think everybody's different. And what I've come to find out is that every every doctor, every cardiologist has a different thought or a different philosophy on treating their patients. Um, you know, my doctor seems to have a very conservative approach to things um, because another friend of mine is a cardiologist and he questions uh, some of the medication I was taking. He just asked me why and he says, well, I don't know if you need that. So. It's it's tough to be a patient, really, because there are so many different, uh, and again, I use the word philosophy, um, each doctor thinks something different. You know, uh, I think they all have the same materials and stuff to read from, but they take away different things. So that's confusing to the patient, and it's 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 difficult, but I'm I'm a huge proponent in your own advocacy as a patient. You have to take responsibility for the way you're feeling and to not to not feel so funny or uh, to feel like you're a hypochondriac if you continue to go back to the doctor because only only you know your doctor and it's the same thing that happened with my shoulder. I knew something was wrong. I wasn't quite sure what it was. I, I and I and I I just didn't I didn't do what I needed to do to uh, um, take care of myself. So everybody's different, and uh, you know it is it is kind of up to your doctor to, to work out a plan and and those types of things to, uh, you know, ensure that you get a long, healthy life. I mean, look, the, the procedures have gotten so much better. Um, the stenting procedures, um, the drug-eluting stents that they use, those types of uh, devices have, have really um, kept people alive a lot longer, but it is definitely something that I think about on a daily basis, and that's trying to make sure that I eat eat right, because uh, I definitely want to be around for a long time. There you go. 
John, a couple more, we'll let you go. First, um, sort of along the same sort of lines, but um, you talk about not playing regularly, uh, writer or listener writes in and say, hey, yeah. since you don't get to play regularly, one of the things that people probably don't realize is how much walking it takes to get from, you know, pro-ams on Tuesday through a final round on Sunday. When you don't get to play as much, how do you stay in shape uh, to handle the walk? Yeah, I mean, I do this. I do. I do the typical things, you know. Like, I, I get out there and I walk and and uh, work out a little bit at the gym and and those types of things um, to stay in shape. I, to be honest, I never really. I stretch a lot. Uh, I think that's as much uh, as anything to uh, to playing. Look, it helps to be uh, to be in great shape, uh, have great lung capacity, and that. Um, I've never been a big gym rat and uh you know i try to stretch as much as i can and, and and do as much physical activity as i as i want to um you know i have a karate instructor that i work with on occasion and uh he put me through the the, the ring if you will and um other than that just being outside practicing running around with my kids just normal activities that aren't necessarily dedicated to to being in great shape but i think that running around with my kids on the soccer field and playing basketball every day does enough for me to, to, to keep me in shape because I've, I've always been in pretty good shape anyway. There you go. So we we can't let you go without getting your thoughts on uh, on the U.S. Open. Who are some of your peers that you think we should keep our eyes on uh, that have an opportunity to win next week? You know, I, I don't know anything about the golf course. I mean, typically when you when you – you know, you think of a U.S. Open, you think of really tight fairways, really firm and fast greens. You have deep rough, so you, you you're kind of going to trend towards the guys that hit it straight. I mean, length, of course, that's always an advantage at every golf course you play. But length, you know, paired together with accuracy, it, it goes a long way. And uh, um, this course apparently is a little bit more benign off the tee. I don't know if it's a second shot golf course like Augusta National is, uh, but from what I'm reading and hearing on on the Golf Channel, it is. Uh, putting is always key. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, McElroy being number one in the world, I mean, he's going to make the headlines because that's, you know, he's he's won one and and uh, he's the best player in the world this time. But um, it's hard to say. Really, I mean, everybody's going to everybody's pulling for Phil. Um, be great to see him get the fourth leg of the Grand Slam and and knock that one off. And I think his game, he Lord knows he's got the best short game uh, going. Um, and so if it's, if you're playing at a golf course that your driving accuracy is not necessarily the most important part of the week, then I think he's always going to be right there. Um, you know. It's just I don't know anything about the golf course, so it's hard to say. I mean, um, I you know I would definitely start with those two guys. You know, with Rory being being the number one player in the world and and understanding how to play a high pressure game, and of course Phil with his creativity, um, and he hasn't lost any of that, and that's something that's very surprising to me at his age. I mean, he's just a little bit younger than I am, but um, at some point you think that would go, but it it hasn't for him. So I look for him to be right there. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us again this week. We'll continue to collect questions, and as uh, your schedule allows, uh, we look forward to having you continue to be part of the show and uh, answer the questions from our listeners. 
you're fantastic and you know you're one of our favorites so thank you very much for taking time out of your day to be a part of the show again this week uh you're welcome chris i always enjoy you know that i appreciate that take care sean enjoy the trip with your family we look forward to catching up with you as we can sounds great thanks chris all right take care sean John McKeel, again, uh, send us your questions o- over Twitter. You can find me at uh, at CT Mascaro. Send me your sh- questions for Sean. Go to our Facebook page, Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, and uh, send us your questions there as well. We uh, we really appreciate it. And while you're and while you're out and about and you're uh, and you're on our uh, on our Facebook page, if you want an opportunity, and I got the driver sitting right here, folks. We've our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore have given us a a, a new tailor-made Aero driver. Signed by Dustin Johnson, so uh, we're going to give that thing away next week. After uh, you know, at the end of the uh, U.S. Open weekend, the, the way to win it is to tell us you know your favorite U.S. Open memory and why it is such. So uh, go to our Facebook page, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Go on there and uh, and tell us your favorite U.S. Open memory and why, and uh, you'll be in there for a chance to win uh, this fantastic driver. It's a beauty, folks. All right, it's uh, time for me to put a bow on this one. Before we go, I also want to give a shout-out today to our good friends over at GolfBalls.com. If you're looking for a great gift idea for Dad this Father's Day, check out the wide variety of gift options they have at GolfBalls.com. You can get Dad's name, initials, favorite saying printed on his favorite brand of golf balls or on some tees. Or how about a personalized hat or towel? Make Dad's Day special and memorable for him for a long time with personalized golf items for GolfBalls.com. GolfBalls.com is the online leader in golf customization. Before we close up shop, I also want to remind you one more time about the great book that our friends Dave Stockton and Dave Stockton Jr. have out called Own Your Own Game. So we're getting ready physically. We're out on the golf course. But remember, so much, and we heard about it today, is so much of the game is played in that five-inch space between our ears. Get your mind right. In this latest book, Mr. Stockton lets you know how to use your mind to play winning golf. Own Your Game recreates the experience of riding 18 holes with Dave Stockton at one of his highly sought-after corporate outings and draws from his experience as a champion both on the regular tour and the senior tour, plus now as a revered coach. He shows you how to think better, stay calmer, execute more consistently, and most importantly, how to enjoy the game more thoroughly. Go to StocktonGolf.com to get your copy, and for a couple extra dollars, we'll even autograph it for you. All right, folks, my sincere thanks to Peter Kessler, Ian Baker-Finch, Bob Geismar, and Pete, and uh, Sean McKeel for joining me today and making today's show so much fun to be a part of. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me, my co-host, Bob Lazari, and our announcer, Joe Alajanusha. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it live on Blog Talk Radio as well as Armed Forces Radio. Plus, on Friday nights, you can hear it from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on BoostRadioNetwork.com. That show, like this one, is also available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, and SoundCloud as well. Uh, On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. We are official partners with the NFL Alumni Association. So please, check out both shows as well on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. You can find us online, this show, nextonthetea.net, and thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free. Plus, keep up to date with who our future guests are going to be on both shows. All right, folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show today. We really appreciate you very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. 
Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Great things are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better. Like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. 